I don't think they're educated. I don't think, I just don't think that they know um, what kind of guys that they have that have given their entire mind, body, and spirit to become fully equipped and trained to, at, at the drop of a hat, go to any country, anywhere, and, um, you know, liberate those who are suffering. Welcome to Wartime. I'm your host and producer, Connor Oden. This season, we'll be talking with two veterans to fully understand their perspectives on war, as well as the parts they both played. We'll dive deep into stories from their deployments to better understand what naval warfare and aerial combat really looks like. In the first episode, we'll be talking with Logan, a Navy Special Warfare combatant craft crewman, also known as SWIC, and his experiences from training to missions. Logan describes his upbringing as slightly sheltered. He was born in Abilene, Texas in 1988, and his dad was a preacher. So why the military? My whole family had kind of served uh, served the country. Uh, my my uh, great-grandfather served in the Army. Um, uh, my uncle served as an Apache helicopter pilot. And then my, my uncle, who I was closest to, he's actually my half-uncle. He, um, he went into the Navy um, just to be a firefighter. Although Logan had many other family members that served in the military, his true inspiration came from his half-uncle. Initially, Logan had his eyes set on becoming a firefighter as well, until in 2004, his uncle heard about SWIC. SWIC was a relatively new program. It stands for Special Warfare Combatant Craft Crewmen. It was implemented because the Navy Special Forces needed qualified boat captains. The Navy SEALs kind of had, they had some issues with, you know, just regular Navy sending um, just regular Navy personnel to to transport these guys around. Oftentimes, you got to work on these boats because they break down. Um, water navigation, um, the upkeep of the boats, the maintenance of the boats. The regular Navy personnel might have had the know-how of how to captain the boats, but they didn't have the physical and mental capability of Navy SEALs. SWIC and Navy SEAL training are very similar. Training consists of Hell Week, where participants get roughly four hours of sleep in a five-day period paired with intense physical training. If the intense physical training doesn't break you down, sleep deprivation will. I was in SWIT class 5-9. We had about 150 guys start, and there was nine of us that graduated. Once Logan finished phase one, or basic crewman training, he moves on to crewman qualification training. And by this time, you've gone from around 150 people down to nine. As the SEALs are fine-tuning all of their diving skills, we're the guys on top of the water picking them up, dropping them off. Uh, Just learning how to work together with those guys via comms, navigation. They definitely made sure that we were very, um, like basically all, all around trained. After training, it's time to put to the test what they've spent so long perfecting. One of Logan's earliest deployments was to the Philippines, but it wasn't to fight. It was to actually train the military to fight against a militia. A lot of people don't know what's going on in the Philippines, but if, if you do your research and, and you really read a lot on it, you'll, you'll notice that there's been a conflict that's going on, that's been going on in the Philippines for, let's say, upwards to 50 years. Um, I mean, we look on the news right now and we see what's going on between, you know, Putin and, and Ukraine. And, and we just think, oh, oh, my gosh, it's so terrible. But um, what about what's going on in the Philippines? See, the United States has a treaty with the Philippines and the NATO nations, basically stating that we can't fire, the United States can't fire a single round in the Philippines. But that doesn't mean we can't send our men over there to train theirs. 
We would hold their hand the entire way, but we couldn't fire a single round. Um, but watching those guys just slowly start to figure out how to work the boats, slowly start to figure out how to do water navigation, and then to watch them complete a mission. Logan's time in the Philippines wasn't only dedicated to training their military. Him and his team were tasked with dealing with some, well, I'll let him explain. We oftentimes got called... Um, you know, if there was more more on a on a global standpoint, like through the NATO nations, whether there was like a human trafficking issue. Logan's team was tasked with dealing with these human trafficking issues on multiple different occasions. We basically just uh, seized and searched a couple of these boats, uh, not boats, but uh, cargo ships. Um, and, and we found people. Um, we found children, women, children. Logan and his team's job was simple. It was to board the boat, find these people and return them to safety. Logan and his team had no idea what led up to them being on the boat and no idea where these these people got sent to after they were found. Although there was one thing Logan noticed after completing these missions. One interesting thing that I did notice is that they were, for all some reason, they were all, um, nine times out of 10, they were either Thai or, or Filipino. And oftentimes they were headed towards the Middle East. According to Logan, the goal of these individuals was to end up in a more sovereign part of the United States. But very bad people had other plans. Logan never understood why these refugees were on a boat headed to the Middle East until he ended up on a later tour in Bahrain. Early on in the war, Bahrain was the hub, the port for the United States in the Middle East. So... And a lot of people in the Philippines, they'll they'll board these ships and they'll board these cargo ships and they'll think and they'll even pay to get on board. And they think that they're they're going to make it over to another country uh, for a better life, you know, uh, and they end up, you know, offboarding, uh, you know, in one of these terrible kingdom ran Islam ran countries. To Logan, service wasn't about the cool aspect of being in the military. It was about being a part of a brotherhood whose main goal was to protect America and save lives. Early on in Logan and I's conversation, I had to ask, what was the most fulfilling mission that he had went on while in the service? The coolest thing where it was like no glory, um, you know, no, no fame, no medal awarded, um, was just getting people out of Connex boxes, you know, in, in the middle, you know, 200 miles out at sea. That, that was probably just a really cool feeling. According to Logan, in Bahrain, there's no middle class. There's either dirt poor or stupid rich. So oftentimes, these Thai and Filipino refugees would be trafficked into places such as Bahrain and used as slaves. And slave work in the Middle East ranges all the way from working in stores to sexual activity. While in the Middle East, Logan and his team were tasked with taking out multiple high-profile targets. Targets that the United States would consider either terrorist or those that have funded terrorism. When we think of individuals or high-profile targets that are highly protected and typically in secret hideaways, we don't consider their hideaways to be 200-foot yachts off the coast of Iran. Off the Iranian coast and other coastlines, um, there's a rule called inland international waters. So you've got, you know, 10 miles out to sea or 10 nautical miles out to sea um, from, from the shoreline to 10 miles that's considered inland waters. And so whoever owns that land, um, that, that they have jurisdiction. Even if we knew that Osama bin Laden, for example, was on a yacht within 10 miles off the Iranian coast, there's nothing that the United States could do about it. We can't just board it. 
um, it, it could cause a, a, a an outright additional war to the war that we're already in. Our government does what it can to apprehend these high value targets. They might spend months, if not years, speaking with the authorities that own that coastline and ask to do uh, an ID check uh, or board the boat with the authorities. However, countries like Iran typically say, oh, no, we don't need you to be on the boat. We can search it. And of course, they don't find anything. Just because the United States doesn't have access to these yachts doesn't mean they just ignore them. In fact, they're constantly watching these yachts and the activities on them because people make mistakes and 10 nautical miles isn't that far. I was a part of a particular um, event where there was, uh, you know, this this particular yacht that we had been watching. And, and, and so I went on deployment. We watched the yacht. I went home uh, for six months. I went back on, you know, and, and a whole group of guys relieved us. So that we've been watching this guy for like a year and a half and he never, ever, ever stepped foot on shore. The fact that this suspect had never, ever, ever stepped foot on shore gave Logan and his team the reason to believe that there was a high value target on that boat. So I was curious, I mean, how do you live on a yacht out in the middle of the ocean for months on end without stepping foot on, on soil? But we would watch, I mean, literally, literally watch these yachts as, as these, we, we call them uh, dows or dinghies is what the American term would be, but dows. And they, they look like little Viking ships, but they've got big, long, shafts out the back of them and they got little props and they run off little diesel engines that's what they would get resupplied with fuel food um liquor opioids food and drugs weren't the only thing that these dows were supplying these yachts they would drop off uh, a whole group of little boys and little girls and of course these little boys and little girls would go inside of the yacht you know what do you think those little kids were in there doing you think they were learning their abcs the anger starts to build as we're watching these cats. These yachts would also have crews of people working for them. And while Logan was watching them, he noticed that a lot of their crew members were Thai or Filipino workers. It's not like we were using satellite images to watch these yachts and being super secretive about it. The military uses technology that Logan called big eyes. Judgment has to be spot on. You have to know for sure that these targets are on these yachts. So big guys allowed them to set up only 2000 yards away from these yachts. And so these guys knew that the military was watching them and had no issues with it. They knew they were safe within 10 miles of the coast that they're sitting on. But I did say people make mistakes. The years of watching these yachts is about to pay off. The, one of these yachts accidentally, uh, I believe it was complete mistake, wandered like 12 miles out to sea and they were out long enough to where we got the green light and um we we boarded their boat it's obviously not as easy as just boarding their boat i mean this yacht is only two miles outside of that 10 mile range they can just motor back two miles and the u.s military can't touch them right see the problem is they know that the military is watching them, but they have no idea when they're coming. Once Logan and his SEAL team got their 11-meter rib boats attached to the yachts, it was game over. So from pulling and pushing, we just kept yanking them and pushing them out to sea. And of course, nobody's coming topside. I mean, it's just like a, it's like a ghost boat. Like nobody's on board. Um, all the windows are tinted, uh, what windows you can see. Um, but we got the green light to basically yank these guys as far out to sea as we could. Besides the yacht, Logan and his team 
weren't alone. One of the eeriest things I think I ever saw being out at sea uh, was about 15 different 11 meter ribs, 15 to 20 11 meter ribs that are just like ours, but they're not flying any American flags. And that was obviously the Irani military uh, basically coming to see like, hey, what are you guys doing? The Irani military stopped at that 10 mile mark off of their coastline. Just like the United States can't access their coastline without permission, they have no say what goes on in international waters. All they can do is watch. But we basically had our way on this boat, man. We did pop off a few Mark 19 um, flashbangs. We did fill the boat with that. So there was a couple holes in it here and there, but we arrested everybody on board the boat. I'm not getting details about like exactly like what happened, word like, you know, shot for shot, word, you know, word for word. But we basically boarded the boat, got everything that we needed or wanted. Uh, we took down a pretty high profile, um, I guess you could call it, he was most definitely a terrorist. Not a terrorist with literal blood on blood on his hands, but but blood on his on his uh, on his checkbook for sure. There's a rule in Bahrain, and that rule is any and everything that sees in the ocean by the U.S. military, the king of Bahrain gets. That being said, Logan had to drive this 200 plus foot yacht to the port in Bahrain and present it to the king of Bahrain with absolutely zero know-how of how to operate a ship that big. I mean, before the mission, he was tasked with studying the yacht that they were on and the controls, but the act of driving the yacht, let alone maneuvering it in a port, is completely different and unfamiliar. A lot of people don't understand what Logan and his team, as well as what the whole U.S. military went through and goes through on a daily basis. I love talking with veterans about missions that they'd went on. But the bottom line is they take sacrifice, they take bravery and selflessness. And I hope I was able to shed some light, not only on the interesting missions, but also the fact that these veterans deserve the utmost respect. Thank you all for listening to episode one of Wartime. Don't forget to join me in episode two, where I'll be talking with a C-130 medic turned Apache pilot. Thank you all again. I'm your host, Connor Odom, and this is Wartime.